0: Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 133 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 133, Scott and I are going to be walking through the CBQ uh, rule book not exactly in order. We are gonna do, I don't know, probably 90, we're gonna ultimately discuss about 90% of the rule book, but we're gonna be doing it in kind of section by section, not in order based on a a kind of a way to review what's in, not review, to cover an overview what's in the rules, predominantly for folks who have never experienced CBQ, uh, who have never experienced quizzing in general, and kind of talk through how CBQ works and why it works the way it works. So a little bit around an overview of the system, talking a little bit about the mission, deep dives into how things work in quizzing, in a quiz in particular, and then rationales behind each rule. Like why are things structured the way they are? And as a result of that, probably we'll come up with a couple of discussion topics around possible strategy uh, that coaches and quizzers can deploy. So this podcast is this episode and probably subsequent episodes or or two will be mostly for folks who have never really heard much about quizzing before. Uh, but it's also going to be useful for folks who are pretty heavily uh, embedded and engaged with CBQ. But before we get into that, I do have a handful of announcements. So, first thing is the CBQ website now has links to CBQ social media things. So, we have a social media army, a group of folks who are putting together a social media engagement. Right now, it's uh, just Twitter and Facebook, but it's out there. So recommend you take a a visit over to CBQZ.org or if you're in Canada, go to CBQZ.org. And you'll be able to find links to our Twitter account and Facebook account with uh, content that will be streaming on those things over the course of the next few days and weeks and months to come. Then another announcement in PNW, the district uh, uh, PNW quizzing district championships is just a little bit under two weeks away at this point. It is up at double K starting on the 19th, Friday, May 19th and into the 20th and the 21st. So very exciting uh, time. And of course, Double K is fantastic. Uh, Wonderful location, very beautiful, very quiet, uh, wonderful food and wonderful opportunity to fellowship and to quiz there. And we will have free reign of the camp uh, like we did last time. Theoretically, it will be a little bit warmer than last time, so no snowbanks anywhere, and in fact, might even be warm enough to be able to do a little bit of swimming in the afternoon uh, when the sun warms things up a bit. So that's exciting. And speaking of exciting, although this may be slightly even more terrifying since I, I think I'm technically running it, but in the International Open Championships of Christian Bible quizzing IOC is slightly more than two months away, which is really not that far away. So it'll be over in Seattle at Seattle Pacific University. Very exciting, very awesome, but also very terrifying. We wanna make sure that that meet is just about as epic as we can possibly make it. All right, that's it for announcements. So I'll just kind of go into what we're trying to do here Uh, over this and next couple of episodes, we're gonna do a comprehensive explanation the christian bible quizzing rulebook and go through kind of those areas that i talked about a little bit before the announcements the uh, rulebook that we're going to be talking about here is going to be version one it's what currently is published on the cbqz or cbqz uh, website so over time not between now and ioc but if you're listening to this episode after IOC, it is possible that maybe version two or three or whatever of the rule book is current. So some of these things may change a little bit between what we're discussing now and what comes later. So anyway, version one is what we're going to be talking about right now. It's only 12 pages. Uh, the CBQ rule is only 12 pages right now, as opposed to, you know, just for example, the current CMA rule book is about 40 pages. Uh, that's excluding the cover page and the table of contents. So it gets even bigger when you include those things. So content wise, 12 versus 40. So yeah, the CBQ rulebook is significantly smaller and significantly less complex. But part of why that's true is that the language of the CBQ rulebook is very concise. Uh, great care was taken to avoid rules that have a lot of exceptions or clauses necessary around them. So that makes the rule book a little bit more condensed, but in being a little bit more condensed, it is uh, smaller, but it makes it more dense and therefore it carries with it a great deal of unspoken implications within those rules. So, I mean, the rules are pretty well, black and white, but hidden amongst those rules and an understanding the interpretation of those rules, you get all kinds of unspoken implications and we wanna be able to cover what those are in this and some future episodes of the podcast. So with all that said, let's just kind of jump in. I'm gonna read first the preamble of the, rule book and we'll talk about that and then we'll just kind of scott and i are just going to kind of go back and forth between different sections so here we go the preamble so uh this is just quoting straight from the rule book uh bible quizzing is a christian sport in which teams of participants called quizzers compete on scriptural recitation in matches called quizzes. Quizzing tournaments called meets consist of a set of quizzes, and quizzing seasons consist of a set of meets. So, Christian Bible Quizzing, or CBQ for short, is the organization that oversees and supports local and regional quizzing opportunity uh, operations internationally, with the mission to encourage the most people to memorize the most verses of scripture. So not, a, not a ton here, other than just sort of, I mean, the mission obviously is very important. And we've talked about that at length in prior episodes, but uh, really just laying out here, what is quizzing? You know, we've got that that's got this idea of quizzers, part of teams. We've got quizzes that are part of uh, meets, which are part of seasons and so forth. Scott, anything you want to add here or any kind of Any kind of question, not questions, because obviously you understand all this stuff, but um, anything we want to dig into here?
1: It it feels formal to me. Would you say it's more formal than the existing rulebook that people are familiar with? And is there something that is gained through formality or is there not really a way to write a casual rulebook?
0: I think... Yeah. The rule book is definitely has an air of formal language, but I think that's because of its the desire to be very precise and small, right? It's like, like what is the smallest possible way to describe what's happening here? So, you know, we've got quizzing seasons consist of a set of meets. Um, I don't even think many rule books actually even have sections that talk about things like that, but it's really just sort of defining terms to make sure that somebody who has never heard of quizzing before, when they see this and, and we talk about, um, say, a quiz meet, uh, you, I, it, in the case of a quiz meet, you can sort of infer what that means, but we want to be really clear what that means and define every term.
1: And it probably, like, you have to name things something, and even though, like, the point of the rulebook is not to, like, force everyone to use only this name. It, you have to call it something to talk about it. And it it makes it just easier for everyone to talk about when there's already a name for it.
0: Yeah, indeed. And so the preamble really is just sort of laying out a couple of terms and definitions for the most part. It's, it's um, I don't know, so I guess it's basic set theory for quizzing. These things contain these other things. Right, right.
1: I just, yeah, I, I want to give people a reason to keep listening when it's like, you know, formal. And of course it's called a meet or, you know, why do I, why should I care about it? You know? And it's just kind of, you got to start someplace.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So with the preamble out of way, uh, you want to dive us into the next bit?
1: Yes. The next bit right from the quiz book quizzes, a quiz is a single match between a set of teams, typically, though not always three, Each team consists of between one to three quizzers. Teams may, but are not required, to designate a coach for each quiz. Each quiz is governed by a quiz magistrate, QM, who is ultimately responsible for the fair and timely conduct of the quiz. The QM may choose to delegate a portion of their responsibilities to other officials. Quizzers sit in a row of chairs facing the audience and officials table. An officials table occupies space between the quizzers and the audience. The officials sit at the officials table facing the quizzers. Designated coaches sit in the front row of the audience. Each quiz contains a set of queries. A query contains a prompt and um, ideal reply, both of which are derived from the material.
0: Yeah.
1: One thing that I Oh
0: I no, go, one ahead, thing? go ahead. Go ahead.
1: I think it's interesting that um, the decision was made to have teams capped at three quizzers. And I think both that and we're going to get to the number of qu- queries later. I, and I think even though there is some different structures, it is l- you probably will have fewer total queries asked in a quiz um, than the current world that people are most familiar with. And I think both the fewer number of quizzers and fewer number of queries makes putting on a meet easier because each quiz is more modular, um, both in facility scope, right? You don't need space for 12 quizzers and all the accompanying people. Um, you need only a space for a maximum of nine, but also potentially shorter in time, um, means that you have a lot of, a lot, you have more flexibility. Um, was that, do you agree? And was that part of the design?
0: Yeah, ideally. So, you know, in terms of, of the, the number of teams, there's, uh, I thought long and hard about this. I really think there's something valuable to having three teams compete, which is at a, in a single quiz, which is really not normal when you're talking about sports. Like most sports are uh, everybody competes against everybody at the same time. So something like, say, archery um, or... And it's not like everybody's in archery. It's not like everybody's shooting arrows at the same time, but rather if I shoot an arrow and then you shoot an arrow, it doesn't really matter which one of us came first. Uh, we, we are still having a singular activity that could theoretically happen simultaneously right next to each other. Uh, if for any reason other than just purely practical, right? Um, so then why is quizzing a single match, why is a quiz a single match between a set of teams typically though not always three as opposed to say typically but not always two, right? Or four, like what? what's the ideal number? And ultimately this, this like just about every other rule gets tied back to the mission to encourage the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses. What's gonna ultimately cause people to be encouraged the most, right? I think it's a combination of a couple of things. Number one, you want the opportunity to have success. You also want to dampen the sting of not necessarily having that success, right? So for example, if you're in a matchup one-on-one, there is a winning team, and then there is a not winning team, right? A team that loses. And that can sting a little bit. And so by having a, a teams in groups of three uh, competing against each other, you don't have a losing team. You just happen to have two teams who didn't get the win, right? So it's, it's a little bit less of a sting. I think in beyond that, though, there's an, a much more subtle and I think a vastly more important reason to have three teams instead of two. The When you're competing in a universe with one other team, the, there is a feel to, there's an, it's, it's hard to describe this, a je ne sais quoi of the the team I'm competing against, I want them, I want to defeat them rather than I simply want to do better than them, right? So uh, there's, a, there's a mile of, of difference between saying, I want to do as best as I can, and I want everyone else to do worse than me. And I think you have more of the latter, no, more of the former. Anyway, <laughs> more of the first one when you have three teams than you have two. It not in a in a massive way, but in a but in a fairly subtle but yet I still think profound way.
1: Interesting. I that is not an aspect that I think about much because the setup of quizzing, regardless of the number of teams, is not zero sum. You know what I mean? Like it's not. There there is um there's a margin of victory. There's points accrued that the, the number of which usually matters. There's the individual side of it that make it such that um, it's not I don't know. I feel like the the specific team win is large is already de emphasized for a lot of quizzing.
0: Yeah, it could be. It absolutely could be. And there's nothing inherently bad about having a two team quiz in a meet and, a, and an environment where all quizzes are two-team uh, quizzes. It certainly makes scheduling a whole lot easier uh, and building out draws and so forth a whole lot easier. But rather, I think there's something subtle and profound about having three teams where the teams tend to be very competitive, but at the same time, encouraging of their competitors in a way I haven't seen in any environment, especially sporting environment outside of quizzing. Now, I'm not going to just say, well, that's just entirely because we're quizzing in a three-team environment, but I think there is something that contributes to that. Interesting.
1: Do you think, is there, like, what about four teams of two?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's very interesting. And and that was kind of what I was, what I was playing with was like, okay, well, I think three is better than two is four better than three. And I'm like, mm, I don't know that it was appreciably better for the complexity app. Right. So like you could certainly experiment with it. And in fact, with, with, um, uh, with CBQ, you, you could in fact run Uh, Four teams of two. No problem. were four teams of three. Uh, The rules absolutely flex to allow that to happen If you wanted to structure it that way, it was rather I ended up going with three because it was the lowest number without Losing the three is better than two phenomenal. Gotcha. Gotcha.
1: Yeah Because I can see there being complexity with four where a toss-up with three teams is different in difficulty than a toss-up with two teams And so would you score them differently? (laughs) Were the same,
0: yeah. Certainly, I think that's that's definitely part of it. But it's, I was thinking more from the from a meet logistics perspective, trying to organize a draw of four teams in a quiz, and then rotating that across an entire meet uh, fairly across a set of teams, uh, seemed like really hard <laughs> and Interesting. like, and I didn't, I, and not to say that something that's really hard should be avoided. In fact, quite the opposite. If something's really hard and it has value, you definitely don't want to uh, avoid it, but I didn't really see the, a net value add of four versus three that would justify the the cost of the complexity. Makes sense to me. I have other thoughts, but I think I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> Okay, Fair enough. <laughs> One thing I did want to point out, this kind of goes back to your point about the preamble, was the third set of things you were talking about, like quizzers sit in a row of chairs facing the audience. There's an officials table between the audience and the quizzers. The officials face the quizzers, you know, that kind of thing. Um, all of that is really kind of dry and May be obvious for anybody who's seen quizzing before, but the, I think the important thing for the for this in any rule book is to be interpretable and understandable by uh, people who've never seen quizzing before. So this was a, an important little bit of content to sort of help paint a picture of what a quiz room looks like. So you imagine a quiz meet might be hosted at a church or a convention center or some other, you know, venue, and uh, you've got a room. Uh, therein where you're going to have a series of quizzes one in after another in sequence what does that room look like well it's like you're going to have some sort of front area stage maybe maybe not but there's going to be a row of chairs where the quizzers sit there's gonna be an officials table and then an audience behind them and the officials face the, uh, the quizzers and the audience, of course, faces the, uh, the quizzers. The audience is able to observe everything. So that's kind of the mental picture that you wanna have uh, going into this thing. And then what is a quiz? Well, a quiz consists of a set of queries and a query consists of a prompt and a reply and thus we're talking about set theory again we're going to definitely be talking about what queries are uh in a little bit but we also need to talk about what material is so um let's let's jump into material so um i'll take this section here uh or at least the first section of it so what are materials when we talk in quizzing what, what we're doing is we're memorizing scripture but we're not memorizing all of scripture all at once for one quiz meet rather a quiz meet will use a predefined set of material uh, from scripture but we need to define very clearly what this word material means think of it as just like a label so what is material it's a library that contains all of the content that quizzers study and compete on for a quiz along with a thesaurus for evaluating synonyms now don't get too hung up on that second part yet. For the most part, you don't even need to know that the, the that the thesaurus exists. It just does. And the quiz magistrate or the QM, uh, the quiz judge, if you will, they're the ones who are gonna have to deal with this, but just know that it exists, right? So each meet should have a designated material description. Um, a material description is gonna consist of three parts. So there's gonna be reference, Range, a reference range, or multiple ranges. There's going to be weighting of those ranges and then a set of translations. For where the scripture is going to come from, so let's dive into each one of these in in sequence. So, what is a reference range? It, a range is just a single set of scripture. So, this can be anything, fairly simple, fairly complicated. You could say Romans chapter one through four and James, right? Well, that's a that's a range of scripture, right? It's from two different parts of scripture. That's fine, but it's it's a it's a combined set of these blocks of scripture. You can do this verse by verse if you wanted to be, you know, that super detailed. Uh you could say Romans chapter one, verse three, and James chapter two, verses five to twenty-three, or whatever. Yeah, like you can do all kinds of different things. Actually, I don't think there's anyway, whatever. Um, but you can you can structure that however you want. You can then take these ranges, a a range or multiple ranges, and then you can set weights to these things. And ranges can overlap, which I know sounds really weird but just kind of bear with me on this so for example you could have romans chapter uh, chapters one through four as one range with a weighting of let's say one and then you could have romans uh, chapters five through eight also with a weighting of one meaning that these two ranges are equivalent in in weight which means that when we generate queries out of this material, the material that you're going to have a, a query that has an equal probability of coming from chapters one through four as a query from chapters five through eight. Right now, it just so happens in this example, we've got four chapters and four chapters and the chapters in Romans here are. Not too terribly different in size. There are differences, obviously, but they're not too terribly different. So the weighting here doesn't make a ton of difference, but you could do something like Romans chapters one through seven weighted at one and then Romans chapter eight weighted at one, which means that on average, typically you're going to see about half of your queries be from Romans chapter eight and the other half be from the the cumulative set of Romans one through seven. So why does this matter? Well, it just gives, it gives people who are putting meets together a lot of flexibility in terms of like, what are the ranges that we're going to use? What are the weighting that we're going to use? What is, what are the focuses that we're going to try to uh, have in a particular meet? So for example, if you've got a lot of um, say rookies, more junior quizzers, you may want to have a smaller overall range Uh, Or if you have, say, some rookies, but then you've also got some advanced folks, you may want to have a slightly larger range, but have a larger distribution of a smaller subset of that be asked more frequently and publish that information ahead of time. This gives uh, quizzers who have memorized a little bit the opportunity or who are just getting started. An, uh, an opportunity to focus in on a fewer number of verses to be able to achieve uh, something a little bit more uh, than say an even distribution field, but yet still provide the quizzers who are memorizing more content to be able to outscore. And so this kind of, again, ties all the way back to the mission, right? Encourage the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses that in necessarily means You're gonna have some people who are memorizing a lot, some people who are memorizing a little, some people who have memorized nothing, in fact. And we wanna try to encourage every one of those people, wherever they happen to be on that spectrum, to memorize just a little bit more than what they've already memorized. Always be, have the incentive there for more study of the word, more memorization of scripture. So that's what this is all set up to do. And then thirdly, it's the set of translations that the material is going to be covering. So this is just going to be based on who's showing up to your meet, right? So if you have quizzers who've only memorized NIV at a particular meet, then you'd only include NIV as one of your as your as your translation set. But if you have quizzers who have memorized NIV and others who have memorized NASB and then others who have memorized ESV, you would include all three of those. So Uh, What constitutes a translation? Well, any word for word or thought for thought translation is acceptable. Paraphrased publications are not used in CBQ for some practical and philosophical reasons, but mostly practical. So uh, that's what's going on there. There is, like I mentioned, an official thesaurus that is included with the material set, and there's a lot of description and defining around what that is and how it gets used, but those rules are predominantly for the QM or other officials if the QM is delegating some of their responsibility, uh, and it's it's used for determining the accuracy of replies, but honestly, as a quizzer and even as a coach, I wouldn't really worry about it too much. Uh, there's really not... I mean, certainly there's no harm in learning about how the, the thesaurus system works, but you don't need to know those technical details to be an effective quizzer or an effective coach. And in fact, I might argue it doesn't really provide you any value uh, when in being a um, an effective quizzer or coach to to understand how this the uh, thesaurus stuff works. So Scott, what are your thoughts?
1: I love a good loophole or a way that by knowing the rules better you can have a little bit of an advantage and I I thought I could find a good one in the Thesaurus uh, part, you know, that's new um, which is basically taking the majority if not all of um, an individual quizmasters judgment of a um, Close enough meaning of a, of a quizzer's answer um, out of it and I really could not find any loophole in a thesaurus, even though like for a given word, there might be more qualifying, um, words in the thesaurus. There's not really a way to study for it. You know, you're kind of saying upfront, I want to spend more time doing less than word perfect knowledge, which seems like a weird way to spend a lot of time. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right, right. Like at the point that you're spending for like almost no gain. You know, if you want to spend that much time, just learn the stuff better. Right. Um, so um, I can, that doesn't mean that there isn't some way that you can gain some advantage, but I, I couldn't think of one.
0: The only thing that I can really think about in terms of like, let's say some, uh, let's say a quizzer had a computer based photographic memory or something like that like just really 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 could memorize just about anything with zero effort um so the cost of memorization is basically zero then it's like okay well maybe you do want to study the thesaurus a little bit the but the only advantage that i can that i can see because this is this assumes that a quizzer who's going to do that has already memorized 100% of the material verbatim with reference, right? Um, And then has also done so across all the translations that are going to be used in a particular meet. So, I mean, we're talking about a huge (laughs) amount of, of memorization that is all going to be more valuable than studying the thesaurus. But let's say, hypothetically, there is some computer uh, an AI that does all of this. And then we say, okay, well, how do you take it and increment by 0.1% even further down the road? Then it's like, okay, th- sure. You could study the thesaurus such that you would be slightly more, very, very slightly more effective at an appeal for ruling where the quiz master made a call on, uh, uh, Synonymous material that was actually not covered in the Thesaurus, or vice versa, right? In other words, if the, if the QM makes some sort of mistake, you'll be able to call that out if you have this the Thesaurus memorized. But oh my goodness, that would be borderline insane, and might happen one query per season or something. So, I mean, is there, is there a non-zero value to studying the thesaurus? Sure. I think theoretically that's true. Practically it, it no, not, not even, not even <laughs> it's it practically
1: speaking, it's zero. And that, that's what I came to too, right? Like there are ways that it would provide an amount of value, but it's just the amount is so small, you know, maybe you have a buddy that just joined. And so you're like, Hey, Um, I've calculated for every single verse something I call the fudge factor, Mm -hmm. which is how many qualifying synonyms exist, right? And verses that have words with tons of qualifying synonyms are right high on this scale. And so I recommend the the top five or ten to you to memorize um, or to like not memorize, like work on such that if you get them, even if you don't know them well, you have a high chance of getting them. A higher chance, relatively higher chance of getting them right. Um, which, you know, I guess that has some amount of value, but I would rather just, if someone was going to memorize or try to work on 10 verses and know them only kind of well that the thesaurus would come into play, I would say just memorize four verses really well, you know? Right, exactly. And I don't I don't think the there's this big difference in ability to score between those approaches, so. Right,
0: so... We are getting really deep into the weeds here, which of course is reasonable because this podcast is called Inside Quizzing. Uh, So we're definitely going to be getting pretty deep in the weeds. But I want to remind folks who have never experienced quizzing before that while we are getting into the weeds here, most of what we're talking about is not necessary to know. Uh, Really what we're talking about here is... uh, you know, you do need to know what is a what are what is the, what are the materials that are going to be uh, covered for a given meet or a given season if you're quizzing in a district, let's say, uh, and having that understanding what those are prior to engaging with the, the quiz meet is a useful thing. But uh, these details don't worry if they're if they're uh, fe- feeling a bit overwhelming. Uh, it's not all that important. Um, uh, to be able to get started. All right. So let's uh, let's jump into the next one. Uh, Scott, you want to take this one?
1: Yes So we're up to query process so right. query process um, formerly known as question um, not really formally known because this is a new new thing but um, query the query process is Announcement prompt reading and call so the QM will announce the query Query 2A for all three teams is a phrase from the NASB. Ready, begin. Then reads the query's prompt. Quizzers will trigger an indication, and I believe that is vague on purpose. Right. um, Because they might push a button. You might use a quiz bench. You might raise your hand. Like, the options are theoretically endless. Um, The first quizzer to trigger this indication makes the quiz magistrate stop short and then the QM calls that quizzer to respond. Once the QM calls on the quizzer, the quizzer has a 40-second response time window. Only the quizzer speaks during this time. The officials, quizzers, coaches, and audience, and, well, you said officials, but specifically the QM is silent during this 40-second um, time window. The QM then rules on the result, and the quiz proceeds to the next query. So I think that is one of the biggest differences is um, only the quizzer is responding during their time time response window.
0: Yes, indeed. So going back to the announcement of the query, so for those who haven't seen um, a, a quiz meet yet or, or, or a quiz yet, Essentially, each query, the the QM will announce the query and they'll say like, well, this is the identifier for the query. So in the example Scott gave, he said 2A. Uh, the query starts at 1A. So there's um, 1A, 2A, 3A and so on. Uh, potentially it'll go to 1b if, say, 1a is aired on. We'll talk about the progression of how that works a little bit later. But ultimately, whatever the query identifier is, that gets announced. It's also announced who is eligible to trigger for that particular query. So by default, all three teams are eligible. If a team errors, then they have to Uh, They are not eligible for the next query, Uh, but generally, uh, so in all alpha queries, like 1A, 2A, 3A, uh, all three teams are eligible. Then we talk about the query type, um, the base subtype. We'll talk about what that means later, but in this case, it was a phrase. And so that's just basically a label for the kind of prompt that the quizzer is going to provide. So the, 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 sorry, the, the Uh, the QM is going to provide. So query 2A, all three teams, is a phrase from some translation. Now it's gonna rotate through the body of translations. So while, let's say uh, you've memorized the uh, the NIV and on query 1A, it was a phrase from the NIV. Well, on 2A, it's a phrase from the NASB. Well, you can still uh, trigger for this particular query uh, you would just be responding in your own local translation. So you memorized NIV. So you'd be responding in the NIV. But the QM is going to announce that the text of the phrase is going to originate from the NASB. So that way you have. opportunity to be prepared for that so then uh, the qm is going to read the queries prompt and a quizzer can trigger now in cbq at ioc the international open championships we're going to be using a a series of push button sets so uh, each quizzer will have a little handheld um, well sorry i want to call it a buzzer but it, it doesn't actually buzz it's basically just a little handheld button and you press the button and a light goes off on the officials table, indicating that you were the first person to press your trigger. But uh, the rulebook language is vague on what that means because, and, it, and it's very consistent on quizzers will trigger an indication that they want to respond. They don't necessarily push a button or buzz or jump or anything else because the method by which a meet decides that they want to provide the quizzers the opportunity to trigger may be different. And so like Scott said, uh, there's an opportunity to have, if you wanted, quizzers could raise their hand if, if you wanted to. Probably not the best solution at the advanced levels, because it's going to be really hard to tell who uh, who raised their hand first, but it is it is possible. Back in the very, very olden days, uh, before electricity, uh, quizzers would be seated and the uh, they would trigger an indication by standing to full stature. And so you would actually have one of the officials would just stare at all the quizzers and try to determine which one of them rose from their chair to full stature first. Uh, so that's um, a little bit of way back uh, history time there. All right. Anything else you want to talk about on query process? Do, do,
1: do. No.
0: Okay. So let's talk real briefly about what a typical quiz is. So again, I really want to stress this is a typical quiz, but not necessarily the way all quizzes are, right? So a typical quiz is typically going to have three teams, and it's going to have 12 queries, assuming that all of those queries are answered Correctly, because, like I said, I, I kind of hinted a little bit before. When a query is answered incorrectly, a query gets added. So when there's an incorrect answer, a query gets added to the set, and the other teams are eligible to trigger for that additional query. I'll talk about more about how that works later. But basically, uh, three teams, twelve queries, is how a typical quiz will be structured. But CBQ doesn't force that to be the case. You can run two team quizzes. You can run four team quizzes. The rules flex to be able to make those things happen. You could have 10 team quizzes, I suppose, if not for the sheer insanity of how that would work (laughs) Um, from a logistics perspective. But, you know, technically from a rules perspective, you could have 10 teams uh, in a particular quiz. Please don't ever do that. That just seems insane. But anyway, typical quiz, three teams, 12 queries. And with that said, this is really all you need to know to be a quizzer to begin participating. Now, granted, knowing more of these rules will be very helpful in understanding what's going on and why. And certainly as a coach, knowing these rules will be helpful in coaching your team and helping your team understand what's going on in a meet and why. And certainly you need to understand more of the rules to help craft strategies to optimize points earned. But that's all sort of getting into more intermediate and advanced uh, forms of, of quizzing engagement, really from 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 just getting in the door, participating, earning some points, putting points on the board, having a good time. That's really all you need to know. You just need to know the sort of the set theory, uh, that what what are quizzes, what's the material, uh, how, to, how do queries work? That's, a, that's really about it. Uh, and everything else you can kind of just wing it and you'll do okay, right? Uh, really the vast majority of CBQ is around it's almost entirely around studying and memorizing. the more you invest in studying and memorizing scripture the better you will do certainly knowing all of the details of the rules will help you squeeze out maybe the last two to five percent uh but but there's really just no substitute for studying and memorizing so yeah if you're if you're just getting into quizzing don't feel overwhelmed by some of the depth that we like to nerd out on If you've been in quizzing for a long time, don't feel like studying the CBQ rulebook is going to give you an edge over somebody who has memorized more than you. It might give you a tiny edge over somebody who's memorized the same as you, uh, but really the more you memorize, the better you're going to do. So just focus your time there. Yes.
1: Um... I think that that is really nice that every query, if it's aired upon, just adds another query. So there's never like, we don't need a nonsense rule. Like you can't intentionally forfeit a question because now there's literally no benefit to you doing so. Right.
0: Exactly. And this kind of goes back to why is it that the CBQ rulebook is 12 pages instead of 40? It's because the situations where you have to develop all these clause rules, uh, are just gone. Uh, the idea of like, well, what if a quizzer just intentionally forfeits a query who cares? Um, they're, they're, they're only hurting themselves in doing so. Uh, and we can just worry about actually running a quiz. We don't have to worry about like trying to interpret a quizzer's intent. Uh, we only have to worry about what the quizzer actually does.
1: seems kind of nice
0: yeah well you want to dive into query types this is this is the uh, the next big topic probably the last one we'll get to in today's episode query types and context so every query has a type which
1: consists of two parts a base subtype and some number of quizzer selected subtypes so the base subtypes there are four quote finish phrase and chapter reference Um, so for example, a quote base subtype would be announced. Um, the query prompt by the quiz match rate would be announced quote James chapter one verse two, which is fairly, um, familiar. There's something I was going to say. Some of this announcement seems like a lot, but if you think of a show like Jeopardy, um, you know, the contestant is saying what they want to do, but they'll say, I'll take synonyms for 600, um, so they are specifying the category and the point value. Um, and in this scenario, um, it is the, the host who is picking every single one, but then they have to be the ones to announce it, right? So that's kind of this announcement period. Um, so the base subtype is announced by the quiz magistrate in this example, quote James chapter 1, verse 2. Um, so that was the quote base subtype. Another base subtype is finish. So a finish queries prompt are the first five words or more of a verse. Does that mean that the quiz uh, magistrate just reads until stopped, Griffin?
0: Yes. Yeah. So the, the queries prompt is whatever we describe these prompts to be. But the moments a, a quizzer triggers an di- indication, the, the QM... Uh, Has to stop. So, in fact, I could actually say, like on a quote question, I could say, quote James chapter one, and if you triggered, I'd have to stop, like at the verse point. Now, granted, at that point, it would be extremely unlikely that you would be able to uh, respond to the quote query correctly, but it is still possible. You would have to guess that it was verse two, and then you'd have to quote verse two. Um, so still possible, but very difficult to do. And similarly, like on a finish query, uh, the prompts is five words or more sometimes, but it needs to be at least five words to be a valid prompt for a finish. But if I only recite the first, let's say three words and a quizzer, uh, triggers, then it's like, okay, I stop. And maybe those first three are enough that they can, they can get the verse. Yep. Um,
1: I'm thinking now about the notion of a foul in age two um, quizzing. And and that is largely um, in play for a quizzer handling their light, right? Either not having their light off before a question begins or by triggering too quickly. Um, And both of those kind of go away, potentially, in CBQ, where now that I think about it, it's kind of weird to have... Well, I guess it makes sense to have your lights be off until they come on, but then that requires quizzers to have them off to begin with. Um, it it ma- makes sense for it to be off by default, and then they have to do do a thing to make it come on. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and then I think a, a big reason for the foul is, well, if a quizzer jumps way too early and truly didn't mean to, um, even though we're not assessing intent even in age two quizzing. Um, We don't want to take that question away from the other teams as well. Well, in age CBQ, doesn't matter, right? Because it only hurts that one team, and so you don't need all this language about fouls and um, Quizmaster has discernibly begun reading because it only hurts the team who does it. And that team should have plenty of incentive to not waste questions, right? Right. Uh, And so, I don't know. These are just more examples of, of ways that the rulebook can be shorter because of other decisions that have been made um, that allow it to be shorter, which I think are pretty cool. Yep, indeed. Um, so we're still on the finish base subtype. Um, the first bit was a finish queries prompt are the first five words or more of a verse. The prompt must be unique across the whole of the material from the translation used. So does this mean that if two words if two verses begin with the same first 20 words, but then deviate from there, uh, that they are valid to be
0: asked? Uh, okay, so let's say there are two verses that have uh, 20 words that start exactly the same, and then on the 21st word, the two verses diverge. Is that the question? Correct. Yeah, so in that case, you could not have a finished query on, on either of those two verses. Essentially, what you need is... Uh, You need ultimately a um, no, 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 sorry. The prompt must be unique across the whole of the material. So, yeah, actually, technically, no, technically, you're right. Um, You could have the prompt become key at at uh, at word 20. And as long as that is part of the full prompt, then then you're fine. Cool. Um, Potentially daunting. But of course, I
1: created a hypothetical. That that specific one does not exist. And even less extreme ones are super, super rare. But um, that is another decision, right? To have yes. it, that be valid so that you don't need rule book language. Like the five word first five words have to be unique. Or the first three words or the first nine words, you're not making those decisions. right? Um, and then the reply must be at least two words long. So I guess what, is, what does that mean in practice? If no one else jumps, but I, do I have to make sure I jump? so that i have at least two words to finish answering otherwise it like passes on
0: no so ultimately this is a constriction around what the the query prompt and reply must be at a minimum, right? So for example, if a finish, uh, if a verse is less than seven words long, it is ineligible to be uh, made into a finished query because you have to have at minimum five words as part of the prompt. And you have to have a reply that's at least two words long, two words long. So therefore the minimum length of a verse that will be eligible for finish base subtypes is, uh, is seven words. So essentially I can have a query prompt that is longer or shorter, right? But I have to have a an, a reply that is at least two words long. So a reply is always going to be from wherever my prompt ends until the end of the verse, right? So as a, as a QM, whatever the prompt uh, is for the query, if it's five words, six words, seven words, wherever that prompt ends from that point to the end of the verse is the reply and that reply has to be at least two words long
1: gotcha do you think it is useful to state the the logical conclusion from how these rules are phrased or to let it like people figure it out uh,
0: so in general i've tried to cause people the opportunity to let people figure it out but um in this one it almost seems sort of self-explanatory based on how it's written here, unless I, unless it's maybe convoluted, unless I didn't write it well enough. What are you What are you thinking? Well, so five the, the the prompt are the
1: first five words or more, which doesn't look like there's anything prescriptive. It doesn't seem like that is directing the quizmaster, the quiz magistrate, to do something.
0: That's right. Like, so these are all sort of like we, we don't have question writers in CBQ; it's all automated. But if you were going to have a human write queries, this is these are instructions for the the writer of the query. So like if you were going to write a program to generate queries, the, these are the requirements of the of that program. The program must select the first five words or more of a verse. The prompt has to be unique across the whole of the material, and the reply basically everything after the prompt has to be at least two words long.
1: Makes sense. So now we've covered two of the four base subtypes. We've covered quote and finish. The third one is phrase. Um, a, phrases, a phrase queries prompt is a phrase consisting of consecutive words from a verse. The queries reply are all of the following words from the verse. The prompt must be at least six words long. The reply must be at least two words long. The prompt must be unique across the whole of the material from the translation used. I think all of that is very straightforward, but it leads me to a question of, is there no um, cross-verse phrase prompts?
0: Cross-verse phrase. Currently, there is not um so in a rulebook version like 0.1 or 0.2 or something there was a cross reference uh base subtype and i really wanted to make it work and i it was just getting to be unwieldy and very different and so for version one i ultimately regrettably decided to drop it i mean regrettably not i think it was the right decision to to drop it but it was um it was not a decision i wanted to make i actually wanted to keep it um, because I thought it was really interesting and pretty compelling the the way it was structured, but it was just became so unwieldy that I was like, yeah, let's, let's park this for now. And maybe I, we can bring it back in a future edition of the rule book. Uh, but for now, yeah, reply uh, phrase queries uh, must be unique across the whole of the material from the translation used. And based on the stuff that you're talking about, you'll notice there is a, a very strong similarity between a finish query and a phrase query, right? So a finish just starts at the beginning of the verse, and it has to be five words or more. A phrase can start anywhere, and it must be at least six words long, so... It's, um, it's similar, uh, but, uh, but different there. So finish, you get a little bit shorter by one word, uh, potentially a query and you know that when you're answering or when you're responding to a finish query, you are, uh, you're expecting the very first word to be the very first word of the verse, whereas in phrase. It is possible to be the first word of a verse, but, but unlikely. So I was not thinking of cross reference. I was
1: thinking of cross verse where sometimes, um, one verse l- leads into the, like, doesn't end with the ending of a sentence and leads into the next verse. Gotcha. And it would be, you would, you know, it would be a natural thought to like start it there. Or is that another difference because, f- um, phrase queries, aren't required to start at the beginning of like a natural English speaking thought.
0: Right. So queries in CBQ are, are limit, uh, limited is not the right word. Queries are structured to be from a single verse. However, quizzers can elect for more points to increase the scope. And so this is where things get really interesting. And so we're we're kind of jumping ahead, but it's exciting to jump ahead in this regard. So what we're talking kind of going back to the very first thing that you said, We said, you know, every query has a type which consists of two parts, two subtypes, a base subtype, and then some number of queries select, quizzer selected subtypes. And so far we've gone through, we're on three of four of the base subtypes, but then there's a a set of quizzer selected subtypes where the quizzer can decide, you know what, I'm actually gonna answer from this verse and the next verse and in doing so get more points. Um, and so that's where that's where you end up with a multiverse uh, universe. Sounds good. Um, so that was the phrase base
1: subtype. I think all of its defined um, requirements were pretty straightforward. The fourth and final uh, base subtype is chapter reference. So it is similar to a phrase query, except there are three parts instead of two. Um, what are the phrase queries, two parts? The query and then the response? Right. Like the rest of the verse? Right. Okay. Chapter reference, similar to a phrase query, except there are three parts instead of two. Part one is at least three words long and unique to the whole of the originating chapter and exists in at least one place in the material, not in the originating chapter. Part two is at least three additional words following the first three words, which are part of the prompt. Um, part three... Ah, part three is the response, which are all following words in the verse, and there must be at least two of them. Uh, one question I have here is, I scrolled away, where am I? If a quizzer triggers after three words of a six-word prompt, do they need to say the three remaining words of the prompt, or do they just have to say everything from word 7 to the end of the verse.
0: They need to say everything from where the quizmaster was was stopped. Um so they need to say all words not said uh by the quizmaster. I forget the exact language of it. I think it's under the ruling section of the rule book uh somewhere but ultimately yeah. So if if there's a 6th six word prompt let's say for a phrase or a chapter reference and i say three of those words the quizzer needs to say the remaining three words of that prompt and then the the reply which is going to be at least two words long now again it doesn't matter as a, as a quizzer you don't care where the prompt ends and where the reply starts just continue from where i started uh or basically continue what i said and just Uh, recite until the end of the verse and you're correct. You don't need to worry about how long is this prompt? How long is the reply? None of that really matters. This is really more, these rules are more for the structure of creating these queries. So for the query creator, whether that's a human or a computer, and then um, the the QM is just gonna be reciting these things and then following along. Now, keep in mind, phrase is very similar to finish with the exceptions that we talked about. Chapter reference is very similar to phrase with one, you know, big difference, right? Ultimately, you can think of a chapter reference as being the same thing as a phrase, except that the first three words of the six words of the prompt happen only once in the originating chapter. And they also exist somewhere else in the material. Uh, that's what makes something, uh, a chapter reference,
1: which is. Very close to what makes something a chapter reference in today's quizzing world.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: It's just that in today's quizzing world has to be the entire question portion and not just the first three words, but everything else is the exact same definition.
0: Right. Indeed. All right. So those are the base subtypes. Let's talk really quickly about context. So this is a... (laughs) this is a kind of an interesting topic here. So, uh, and we're, we'll talk about context and then do a very, very brief, uh, overview of quizzer selected subtypes because that's where things get really, uh, interesting for, but it's all under the quizzer's control. So the quizzer gets to decide to what degree they're going to, you know, dive into these, uh, quizzer selected subtypes. So, what is context so on all queries with a base subtype of chapter reference quote or finish and if you're you know keeping score at home that means basically everything that is not a phrase uh base subtype uh has the con uh, the concept of context associated with it phrases don't have content so anyway the, you can ignore that for phrase queries, but for the other ones, chapter reference, quote and finish, the QM must count the quizzer immediately incorrect if they should fall out of context when responding. Okay, well, what, is, what does that mean? What is context? So a quizzer is out of context when the quizzer says any two word or longer globally unique phrase from the material where at least one word of the phrase, it's outside the context of the quizzer. Query, okay, so not just the prompt, not just the response, but the entire query. The context for a chapter reference query is the chapter from which the query originates, the entire chapter. And the context for a quote or a finish query is the verse or verses uh, from which the query originates. Uh, and so basically, as long as the quizzer doesn't say something that specifically puts them into a context that's outside of the query, the quizzer can say anything. Right? So the quizzer can say, um, I'm not sure. I had eggs for breakfast. And as long as none of the those things exist in the material in a unique uh in a unique place, they are they're not out of context. But when they say something from the material that is out of context, then the quiz master has to count them incorrect. So why did why is this why does this exist? Well, on quote and finish queries, we want the quizzer to understand verse boundaries, basically to be able to know, like if I'm saying quote James chapter one, verse two, you don't start quoting in verse one and you don't necessarily trail into verse three if you didn't get verse two uh, correct first. The idea being here that we we do want you to have a, a, a sense of a, the context or not the context, the, the scope, the limits of what a particular verse or set of verses are. So again, like what I was saying uh, before, a, by default, a query is one verse in size, but a quizzer can grow the size of that query. So a query might be one verse, but it could be two verses uh, based on whatever the query is. Uh, sorry, what the quizzer is selecting as their query selected subtype. Any, uh, Scott, any questions on t- context before we jump into quizzer selected stuff? On context, I
1: think the an obvious thing to wonder about is, Well, can't I just make a bunch of guesses now without penalty? And the answer would be yes, if the questions had any structure similar to interrogatives today where there might be a one-word answer, right, where, oh, the answer is Paul. And if that was the case here, I could just say every proper name in the entire material. And once I got to Paul, I'd be right. And that would be allowed. But the structure of phrase queries are that you have to go to the end of the verse. Which means maybe you do get to guess on the, the proper name that exists, but you have, to get a, you have to get more stuff than just that in almost every occurrence, right? You might happen to jump at a, at a point where um, there's very little left and you have more leeway um, than you did before, but um, that's probably not going to be terribly common.
0: Right. And of course, it doesn't matter when you're talking about a phrase query. It really only matters when you're talking about like chapter reference, quarter finish. The context here is less about having a quizzer mentally oops into a different part of the material and or providing a response that doesn't necessarily fit exactly the query that they're responding to. It's rather about ensuring that they stay localized within within a particular area. So when we're talking about a, a chapter reference, I'm going to say according to James chapter two. The the implicit nature of that query is that I want you to be aware of what is the confines of chapter two. It it actually matters that you're that that we're we're saying I'm limiting limiting the scope down to only this chapter this chapter of of chapter two if you happen to start talking about things that are in chapter 3 then you're out of context you're talking about things that are in chapter 3 now again if you use a word or two uh or even a phrase that exists in chapter 3 as long as those things also exist elsewhere right they exist in chapter 1 as well as chapter 3 then you're okay because you're not you, you're not def- lo- you're not localizing yourself you're not uh globally specifying hey i'm actually in chapter three now that's fine to say but the moment that you put yourself specifically into say chapter three you're no longer in chapter two and that violates the constraints of the chapter reference uh, query similarly for a quote and a finish i'm wanting you to uh, to say like well we're talking about a singular verse unless you add a verse to it um and therefore, if you happen to go out of that one verse, then you are out of context for, for the response. So it's less about correct or incorrect responses that context exists in CBQ, and it's more about respecting the constructs of the limiting factors of these three query types.
1: Interesting, but I think it's a useful distinction. Yeah.
0: All right. So let's go real quick into uh quizzer selected subtypes. So this is where things get really weird and really interesting, but also really powerful for quizzers who want to leverage this kind of power. It puts in the hand of quizzers quite a bit of capability, quite a bit of power, quite a bit of options but don't feel overwhelmed by this. These, these options are, you don't have to do anything with them. If you're just starting out, don't, you could basically just completely ignore quizzer selected subtypes entirely. You can still answer questions. You can still answer queries. You can still uh, put points on the board. You can still uh, do well. Uh, These are just sort of ways to expand and do even better. Okay. So, generally let's start out by talking about the default. So all queries are assumed to be of the quizzer selected subtype synonymous. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, there's three quizzer selected subtypes that are mutually exclusive from one another. They're sort of the style, style is not the right word, the modality, I guess, of how you're going to respond to that that query. So there are three of these things. Number one is synonymous. Number two is verbatim and number three is open book. So let's actually go backwards. Let's start with the easiest one possible. So the easiest one is open book. That's where you can just literally open up some reference materials and respond. I'll talk a little bit more about that one, what that means in a little bit, but the next one is verbatim, which is basically you have to say every word verbatim, everything that's in the verse, uh, as you can imagine, that's hard. Uh, You know, if you're, if you're doing something memorized, uh, if you're, if you're answering memorizationally, open book, super easy verbatim is, is very hard. So in the middle of these two is synonymous and that this is the default. So what does this mean when uh, a quizzer is answering synonymous? Well, it means the quizzer has to provide the words or synonyms of words from the material to be counted correct. They don't have to provide every single word. It doesn't necessarily have to be in order and they can use synonyms and other sorts of things can be a little bit different and still be counted. Correct. Now, if they answer, if they, if they're answering in synonymous mode and they happen to answer verbatim, okay, great. They're, they're still correct. They're correct. Synonymously. It's just that verbatim has a higher standard for, uh, for the answer. Okay. So before we jump into these a little bit more detail, Let's talk about uh, how does a quizzer select a quizzer selected subtype. Well, a quizzer once they get what they, they trigger. Uh, let's say they push their button and a light goes on. The the quiz magistrate calls on the quizzer says Bob, Jane, whatever. You're you know the quizzer who then has 40 seconds to respond. Uh, during that 40 second response time, the quizzer can call for a subtype or any number of subtypes, and this sets those subtypes but the quizzer cannot unset a subtype that they've called, right? So for example, uh, by default, everything is synonymous unless I, the quizzer, say I want something different. If I then uh, uh, start responding during my 40-second response time, and then I say the word verbatim, then the quiz master will start evaluating me based on verbatim rules, not on synonymous rules. However, I cannot switch back to synonymous or switch to open book once I have called verbatim. Similarly, if I call open book, I cannot switch to synonymous or verbatim, right? Uh, I suppose I could call synonymous to set synonymous, but there's no point in doing so. So I don't expect anybody would actually do that because that's the default. And this also works for the other, uh, query selected subtypes as well that are not mutually exclusive. We'll get to those in a second. Uh, but ultimately just think synonymous is default, and then I can select another one. But once I set something as a quizzer, I can't unset it. Um, okay. The other thing to keep in mind is if I begin responding during this 42nd time response, and I respond under the default scenario, the synonymous scenario, but then I decide I want to switch to verbatim. Everything that I said prior to switching verbatim is ignored. Um, the, the The QM will only consider what I provide after switching to the verbatim response to evaluate whether I have answered verbatim. Okay, so let's let's jump into what these things are: the synonymous, verbatim, and open book. So. Under the synonymous mode, the default, the quizzer provides a reply that includes every word from the actual text or any words replaced from that text with a synonym or a synonymous word as defined in the official thesaurus. So again, this goes back to, well, what's in the thesaurus? Well, it's words that are very similar to the words from the actual text that the QM is allowed to consider as responses to cover the words from the original uh, text, a quizzer can also use the antecedent of a pronoun. So if Paul said something, but the verse doesn't say Paul, it says he, and I use the word Paul instead of he that's totally fine. Right. But if instead I use the word they, that is insufficient. Um, I'm not immediately incorrect, uh, but I have to come back around to either he or Paul, uh, rather than they. Um, so that's, uh, you know, Antecedent of pronoun or the pronoun itself is fine. And then any word that is a conjugation, alternative tense, or an alternate singular versus plural word of an otherwise acceptable word is itself acceptable. So if I say, if the word is door and I say doors or vice versa, that's completely fine. Um, and conjugations, uh, alternate conjugations are fine as well. The articles, uh, any articles in the text are also ignored by the quiz master. So things like a, and the, if you don't say a, or the, or if you say an extra the somewhere, uh, those are just completely ignored, uh, by the, uh, the QM. And then should the text identify a person of the Trinity, the quizzer must provide a name of that same person Uh, should the text include a specific title of the person of the trinity the quizzer must provide the specific title right so in other words if you're talking about uh, son of man you actually have to say son of man you can't just say jesus right Uh, so that has to be properly identified to be able to be counted correct now as long as you don't say something that's out of context you can start guessing a little bit but you got to be careful because if you start to say something that exists in a context out of context, now for phrase queries, there's no such thing. So you're, you're safe here. But if you're talking about a chapter reference or a, or a quote or a finish, you got to be careful uh, there. Uh, but you do ultimately need to name, uh, the, you have to identify the person of the Trinity accurately. Uh, and if the title is used, you have to use that title. Otherwise, synonymous allows you basically bottom line here is synonymous provides you a great deal of flexibility in how you respond to the prompt. You do have to get basically most of the words. Uh, you basically need to say the, the rest of the verse, but you don't necessarily have to have it word perfect. Okay. So speaking of word perfect, there's verbatim. Verbatim is you gotta say every word verbatim from the original material. This includes all the articles. You have to say each word in the correct order without any added words, right? So you can't add extra words and also say all the correct words. You have to not add extra words and say all of the words in the correct order. You also need to make what's called a full rotation on the verse. So uh, if you get halfway through the verse, or let's say, let's say, forget that. Let's start at the beginning. You start at the beginning of the verse. It's a, let's say it's a quote question or a quote query. You start at the beginning of, of the verse and you start reciting words and right around halfway through you insert a word and then you keep going correctly until the end. You are not correct yet. You then have your 40, whatever's remaining of your 40 seconds. You can start over at the beginning and start quoting your way through again let's say the second time through you don't add that extra word you just keep quoting and you happen to quote correctly you don't actually have to quote correctly all the way to the end of the verse you only have to quote beyond the point where you made that mistake that first time right that's what's called a full rotation In addition to that, a quizzer can also say an incorrect word or phrase and then correct it in that moment and then continue on without actually having to do a full rotation. So for example, you start at the beginning of the verse, you get to the middle, you add a word, uh, and then you say, wait, no, not that word. That would be a little bit harder to do. But essentially, let's say you get, you say the verse, you get to the middle and you use a synonym for a word that's in the middle of the verse. You catch yourself in that moment You then change that word to the correct word and then continue to the end of the verse. You're correct there without having to go back in and repeat. So that's verbatim. So a little bit of flexibility there, but ultimately you do have to say the verse in full uh, with all of the words, nothing replaced, all the articles are there uh, all, all the things. And then let's talk a little bit about open book. Um, so open book basically when you call open book, a quizzer can use reference materials to respond. you can literally open up your Bible whatever or any other kind of pre-prepared reference materials. you can look something up and then respond from uh, from the text. The uh, quiz magistrate in that case is going to evaluate the response, as if the response was a synonymous uh, subtype, but the quizzer is allowed to reference their materials when they uh, call for open book. Okay, so like I said, synonymous, verbatim, open book, they're all mutually exclusive. I wanna talk about two additional uh, subtypes, quizzer-selected optional subtypes that are not mutually exclusive. You can kind of mix and match these. So the first is called with reference. So if a quizzer calls with reference they then are going to be required to provide the reference for the verse or verses we'll see in a little bit that they're uh, that they're quoting from so a qm will require the, uh, quizzer to provide a full reference, including uh, book chapter and verse number to be counted. Correct. Only the first reference provided will be considered though. So if you say, if it's from James chapter one, verse two, and you say James chapter two, ver- or sorry, sorry, let's say it's from James one, two, and you say James one, three, no two, you're incorrect because two came, you said two first, uh, no, wait, am I doing that backwards? I'm doing that backwards. I'm tired. Anyway, if you if, if you if you say an incorrect verse first and then correct yourself, you are still uh incorrect. Only your first answer is is uh is accepted by the the quiz magistrate. Okay, so that's with reference. The second optional uh non-mutually exclusive uh subtype is add a verse, right? So this is where you know, like we were talking about, you know, uh queries are all constrained to a single verse unless the quizzer adds a verse and if you add a verse queries are all extended then by one additional verb so this of course has implications for a lot of things but in particular it has implications for with reference because if i say uh add a verse with reference and the original query was from james one two i can't say james one two i have to say james one two and three uh to be able to be uh Okay, so I know that's a lot of complication here. If you're just starting out in quizzing, trust me, just ignore all of this. Uh, just answer the default. You'll you'll do fine, right? But why on earth would a quizzer ever want to call for quizzer-selected subtypes? I mean, I guess sure, open book. If you trigger and then you're like, wait a minute, I don't remember. I want to consult my material. You call for open book. You can consult your material. That makes some level of sense, but why on earth would, as, as a quizzer, why would I make it harder on myself by calling for verbatim or adverse or, or with reference, that kind of thing. The reason you do that is because the points earned are different as the difficulty of the subtypes increases, the points earned increase and they increase a lot. Uh, but before we get into scoring, which we'll probably get to next, uh, episode, Scott, any questions, comments, concerns, negative doubts or far- paranoia regarding quizzer selected subtype?
1: Um, I don't think anything until we get to scoring. I, <laughs> I do have one comment from earlier, though.
0: Yeah, go for it. You
1: were talking about how specific the rulebook describes the quizzers being seated in the official's table being seated in its location um, to kind of give people a mental picture of it, which I think is is useful when you're trying to learn something for the first time. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any value to almost structuring it like a patent application where it would have actual like drawn diagrams as part of the rulebook to enhance the mental picture? Or is that just overkill?
0: Uh, As far as the rulebook, I think it's I think it's probably overkill just because it's unnecessary for a minimalist rulebook. That is to say, like the goal of the rule book is not necessarily to be the most easily digestible form, but rather the most concise form of the rules. And I think we have other documentation and we're going to be creating more documentation, more videos, in fact, training material and, and other sorts of things, um, videos that demonstrate how quiz, uh, quizzing works and so forth, that will have those things like the drawings and the pictures and, and that kind of stuff, because I think definitely having visuals is going to aid in understanding, but I want to keep that stuff out of the rule book uh, to ensure that the rule book is, con- is, is concise, right? So the idea being that you can read it once and then use it as a reference uh, guide, and it's very, very short to be able to get to. So as a result, there's a, and it, like I mentioned at the very beginning, there's a ton of unspoken implications that come out of the juxtaposition and merger of different parts of the rules together and that is left up to an exercise uh, for the coach and quizzer and for people who are writing strategy guides and study guides and we're going to have plenty of that as time progresses yeah excited to get to it cool any questions on any of these subtypes quizzer selected or or otherwise i don't think so Cool. All right. So next, uh, we're le- le- uh, sort of ending this episode on a cliffhanger, but it's a really good cliffhanger. Uh, the next episode, we're going to be talking about scoring and then continuing on through a few bits of the other parts of the rule book. But scoring is a big deal. It basically structures around the idea of like, well, why on earth would I bother with verbatim? Uh, with with a reference or uh, at a verse because it provides you tremendous scoring advantage over not leveraging those subtypes so we'll be talking about that and more next episode and with that i will say uh thank you all for listening and thank you scott
1: as always thank you to our listeners and thanks for uh thanks to griffin for co-hosting